Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to the 200th episode of The Amazing World of Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Today's program is being cross-posted on the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, because not only is this a milestone episode, but it does have a bit of a detective tie-in. Now, I'm going to explain some information that may be a bit redundant for those who have been listening to the amazing world of radio, but uh, bear with me. Uh, we have been doing a series, Man of a Thousand Voices. These feature programs starring Paul Freeze and Frank Graham, each who did radio programs where stories were dramatized with them doing all of the voices. Frank Graham was the first person to do this sort of program. He was known as the one-man theater when he started uh, broadcasting these programs in the 1930s. And then Paul Fries did similar programs towards the end of the 1940s. Now, during Frank Graham's run over the radio, he did a wide variety of different stories, including many crime stories. And he also created a character, Cosmo Jones. And Cosmo Jones was such a popular character that this led to another series, a detective series where Frank Graham played Cosmo Jones and all the other characters. In fact, it even led to a Poverty Row film, Cosmo Jones in the Crime Smasher. We have scant details on the Cosmo Jones series, but it ended in the early 40s along with Frank Graham's one-man theater shows. However, when Paul Fries did his program, Studio X and The Player, he needed scripts that were fit for this one-man play format. And in the course of that, he revived the character of Cosmo Jones. So as it happens, we have one episode of Frank Graham playing Cosmo Jones, and then we have another episode of Paul Freese playing Cosmo Jones. So for our 200th episode, we're going to bring you a double dose of our Man of a Thousand Voices series. We'll start out with Frank Graham in Nightcap Yarns, the original air date March 27th, 1939, and the title is The Professor Goes to the Museum. The little professor ventured toward the captain's desk and began a statement. Captain Murphy, I believe that I have a plan that might be well to use in the capture of the... Murphy let go with his usual explosion. Now, wait a minute. Stop. Stop right where you are. But, my dear captain, I believe that the art of pretense should be used in tripping up... The captain banged his fist on the desk. Don't give me that monkey business about pretending again. Two million dollars worth of paintings have been stolen from the Beaux-Arts Museum, and no amount of bluffing is going to bring them back to me. The little man clucked his tongue and shook his head. But, Captain, I'm led to believe that only one man is perpetrating these daring robberies. Yes, and I'm led to believe that if you don't get out of here, I'm going to have you thrown out. Now, are you just going to go? Cosmo shook his head. No. 
and the captain carried out his threat. Remembering only too well the little man's adeptness with the jujitsu, Murphy yelled for Flanagan, Riley, Maloney, and O'Brien. The door of an inner office opened, and the four burly policemen stepped in. Murphy pointed a finger at Cosmo. Put this gibbering little idiot out in the hall, but handle him gently, or you might hurt him. One officer took Cosmo by the right arm, another took him by the left. Still another took him by the scruff of his neck, and the last one grabbed him by the seat of his pants. Holding him at arm's length, the officers opened the door, thrust him lightly outside, and shut it quickly. Murphy settled back in his chair. <sighs> well, that settles that. But the tantalizing little man had a taunting remark up his sleeve. The door opened again, and Cosmo shoved his head in. He smiled slyly at the open-mouthed police official and said, Just think, Captain Murphy, it took four of your big, strong policemen to put me out. With that, he was gone. And Captain Murphy flew into a frenzy that bordered on an epileptic fit. Throwing his head back and holding his nose snootily in the air, Cosmo marched past the disgusted sergeant at the reception desk and on into the street. It was still early evening, and the professor turned his footsteps toward the downtown section of the big city and dolefully moved along, gradually settling his mind in a state of deep thought. As he shuffled through the hurrying helter-skelter of humanity, he dwelt on the probability of what might be best to do. When eventually an idea formed in his mind, he was so preoccupied that he came to a dead stop right where he was and remarked out loud, I know what I shall do. I shall go to the museum. It so happened that this thought came to the little man right in the middle of the street. He took one look at the half dozen or more gasoline juggernauts bearing down on him and made a headlong dive for the curb. He made it all right, yes, and grinned with embarrassment at the score of passers-by, who paused momentarily to gaze at him, then continued on their way with dubious shakings of the head. But Cosmo shuffled along without indignation, realizing only too well the people were quick to recognize the blunders of everybody but themselves. In reviewing the newspaper details of the museum robberies, Cosmo remembered that in each instance of thievery, a valuable painting had been removed from its frame and replaced with a worthless imitation. The mystery was further complicated by the fact that the police had been on guard for the past several weeks, on the lookout for a band of men who might be the criminals. But there had been no cars, no trucks, or groups of men seen loitering about the huge building, which gave Cosmo reason to believe that the crimes were being committed by one man. And the fact that the priceless works of art were being replaced by worthless replicas made the little professor feel sure. Yes, surely it must be. It was an artist, or at least a would-be artist, possibly seeking revenge for... Wait a minute. If Cosmo's memory served him correctly... Yes, that was it. He would check it immediately. The little man quickened his pace and headed for a Times newspaper branch office only two blocks away. Arriving there, he quickly scanned through the file of previous editions and... Yes, there it was. An account of the Beaux-Arts Museum turning down the paintings of an artist who had submitted works more than a month ago. Cosmo decided that he might be on the right trail. The details of how he would get his man could be worked out later. He headed for the museum as fast as his scrawny little legs would carry him. While he cut down the distance toward his destination, he remembered that it was every other day that the paintings had been missed toward the early part of the evening. There were hardly any visitors in the massive structure at that time, just after the dinner hour, 
which would make it easy to complete a switch of the pictures. Yesterday, there was no report of a missing piece, which would make tonight the logical time for another attempt. Cosmo puffed his way up the long, sweeping flight of stone steps and entered the great portico of the museum. Once inside, he took note of the fact that, just as he had expected, there were only a few stray visitors. His beady little eyes traveled over the main hall of art. He noticed the many entrances to little passageways that wound around and throughout the wings of the museum building. Ah, yes, indeed. He could easily understand the possibilities of hiding in this maze of niches and corridors where the beautiful paintings of the world's great artists hung in new figures. Cosmo stationed himself in a patient vigil near the giant entrance and watched for the few stragglers who came in. From time to time, whenever a man who looked like he might be an artist entered, Cosmo would approach and, while he patted the arms and sides of the visitors in a seeming gesture of goodwill, he would go into the business of saying, Well, 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 if it isn't my good friend, Dr. Demikoff, it's been years since I've seen you. The stranger, of course, would shake himself from the professor's grasp, mutter something about uh, he must be making a mistake and hurry away. After annoying people quite a number of times this way, Cosmo was warned by one of the few attendants to discontinue this practice. And the man went on to say that if he didn't, well, the police who were on their way to the museum for an investigation of the robberies would be notified. But the professor didn't stop his monkey shines. And when a sad-faced gentleman was made subject to the professor's impromptu frisking, he immediately shoved the little man away. But not before Cosmo felt the odd and unusual bulge under the man's overcoat. At last he had him. Then, as luck would have it, Murphy and his blue coat surged through the doorway and Cosmo was in a mess. The attendant spilled the beans and Murphy roared. Well, I see you're up to your screwball tricks again. What's your excuse this time? Cosmo tried to quiet the irate policeman. Now, now, Captain Murphy, I have the solution to everything. I've caught your thief for you. Yeah? Where is he? The professor turned and pointed his finger at at empty space. In the excitement of explanation, Cosmo's suspect had disappeared. Seeing the professor point at nothing was enough for Murphy. I'm convinced. I always thought you were a lunatic, but now I'm sure of it. Flanagan, grab him. And Flanagan made his mistake. He made a lunge, but before he could draw a second breath, his 200-pound frame went sailing through the air. Cosmo started off on a run, and Murphy yelled, Get him! What do you mean, get him! And all of you stay inside. This building's surrounded. Everybody started running in all directions as the spry little fellow vanished through the maze of hallways. He headed for a flight of stairs and gained the second floor, skittering along for all he was worth until his attention was arrested by an object. He spotted the empty shell of a knight's armor and immediately headed for it. Hurriedly, he laid down his familiar walking stick and umbrella behind the low pedestal, flung off his huge overcoat, and dropped it in a monster vase. Then he tugged at the helmet of the suit of armor and lowered it over his head, propping up the visor. Next came the great chest plate. And by the time he had wriggled his legs into the armor that normally goes around the thigh, Cosmo discovered that the leg section that should have ended at his knee was down around his ankles. He had enough room in the thing to take up light housekeeping. Then, to make matters worse, as he started for the pedestal, the visor of the helmet dropped down over his eyes, and Cosmo gave a fine performance of a bold knight playing blind man's buff. He tugged at the visor with both hands, and unconsciously, 
His feet began to wander. Yes, he made it all right. The top of the grand staircase. One foot stepped off into space, and the result? He came to rest at the bottom of the staircase, with his suit of armor dented in more than a dozen different places, and a vague memory of knocking something over on the way down. At the sound of the terrific racket, Murphy and a crowd of his officers came on the run. Cosmo could hear him bellowing. Grab both of them! Wait a minute. This one guy's not cold. Hmm. Well, now let's see who's in the iron tank. The professor could feel himself being mauled around roughly. Then Murphy spoke again. For the love of Mike, this thing is so buckled and bent that we can't get him out. Uh, Somebody, somebody get a hammer and a hacksaw, will you? There was quite a bit of commotion and the little man was propped into a sitting position. The police captain asked a question. Uh, Whoever you saw in there, speak up, will you? Uh, Who are you? Cosmo revealed his identity. It's me, Captain Murphy. Well, of all the... How in the name of all the saints did you just get in there? Really, Captain Murphy? I'll have to admit that I've made a rather bad job of tonight's business. But it's nobody's fault but your own. At this point, several officers returned with the hammers. And Murphy supervised the job of extricating Cosmo. All right, men. Get to work on him. But be careful you don't bash in his head. That's my privilege. Captain Murphy! Captain Murphy! At the sound of the little fellow's plaintive outcry, the captain interrupted the destruction project. Well, what is it? Be careful not to hammer the helmet. I have a very bad case of epistaxis. What kind of taxes? Not taxes. Epistaxis. Murphy scratched his head. Uh, And uh, will you be telling me what kind of a disease is that? It's not a disease. It's a nosebleed. After several minutes of sweating, the police finally succeeded in freeing the bedraggled little man. And the minute he got out, he recognized the unconscious figure on the floor as that of his suspect of the early part of the evening. Murphy gave credit where it was due. Sure, sure it's a thief, all right. He just knocked him cold on the way down the stairs while he was on his way up making a getaway. And uh, we found he just switched another painting under his coat when we landed with a crack of the noggin on the marble floor here. The captain stooped and picked up the remains of the suit of armor. If you ask me, this was the craziest thing you ever tried to hide in. Are you hurt in any way at all, at all? Why, no, Captain Murphy. I'm all right. Murphy let out a sigh of relief. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad of that. A look of surprise crossed over Cosmo's face. So, Captain Murphy, it finally comes out. You really do like me after all. Get him out of my sight. Get him out of my sight before I lose my mind. Welcome back. Cosmo Jones' approach of searching all the visitors seemed a bit ticklish in more ways than one. But still, it did get the job done. And overall, it does have a nice screwball feel to it. 
I should note that uh, this was kind of short because with one exception all of the nightcap yarns episodes that are in circulation are missing those little show announcements and incidental music that kind of fills up the runtime. Now let's go ahead and take a listen to Paul Freeze. And this episode originally aired in 1948. It was episode 3 of Studio X and the title is The Professor goes for a walk. All right, Denny. We've got you and your mob completely surrounded. Are you coming out peacefully, or do we have to blast you? For an answer, Captain Murphy of the 63rd Precinct received a withering flame of machine gun fire from a second-story window. His police squad ducked behind bulletproof cars and armored cycles. With swift movements of shuffling feet, Professor Cosmo Jones sidled up to Murphy. Uh, pardon me, Captain, but may I suggest that I be allowed to intercede? The big policeman turned around and his face twisted in a mixed picture of surprise and rage. So, it's you again, Cosmo Jones, you little mouse. Now listen, will you go home and crawl under the bed before you get hurt? These guys are killers. He turned toward the police car's microphone. All right, mate. Let them have it. And that's the dramatic opening to another story from Studio X, starring America's most versatile actor, Mr. Paul Freese, who will return after a few profitable moments with your announcement. your star of Studio X, Mr. Paul Freese. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Studio X and our presentation of The Professor Goes for a Walk. During a slight lull in the firing, Professor Cosmo Jones took advantage of another opportunity to approach the police captain and tugged at his sleeve. Uh, if you please, Captain Murphy, I have a very good suggestion as to how... Listen, didn't I tell you to get back out of here? Murphy turned back to his men. Cosmo reached up and tapped him on the shoulder. I I'm quite sure that if you'll just listen... The captain went livid with rage and choked up. And from then on, the police did everything to get Cosmo out of the way. They pushed him around, they jostled him aside. Meanwhile, the battle carried on with Murphy directing hostilities toward the hoodlum hideout. 
and shaking himself free from the professor who constantly tugged at his coat. Finally, it was the little fellow himself who gave up in disgust. Grasping his walking stick and umbrella firmly in one hand, he calmly walked out right in the center of no man's land. Standing there in the white beams of police searchlights, he was a perfect target for gunfire from either side. Captain Murphy nearly had a heart attack as he screamed into the microphone. Hold your fire! Hold your fire! Beads of sweat oozed out of his forehead as he addressed the professor. Get, get out of here, you little dope! Come over here before you get a bullet in the pants! Come on, hurry up! But Cosmo had made up his mind to take a different course of action. He approached the opposite curb, threw back his head, and called up to the second-story window. Uh, uh, gentlemen, I should like to have a talk with you. I'm sure you won't mind if I come upstairs. There was no firing, no response from the window. Without a moment's hesitation, the professor entered the building and proceeded up the stairs. At the top of the landing, he knocked on the wooden panel and waited until the door was jerked open. He boldly stepped across the threshold under the guidance of two men bristling with guns. There were two other men inside, and the room looked like a small arsenal. The shades were ripped away from the glass-shattered windows, tables and chairs were overturned, and the place was in a thorough state of shambles. The only light in the room came from the searching ribbons of police lights and the bright glow of street lamps on the outside. The professor stood there meekly and... Till the man who seemed to be Donelli, the leader, spoke. What you got on your mind, screwball? Cosmo stood perfectly quiet as he answered. Uh, well, gentlemen, to be perfectly frank with you, I, I was thinking that you might save yourselves a lot of trouble by raising a flag of truce, laying down your arms, and submitting peacefully to the officers of the law. A tough-looking individual with a scar that ran from his temple to the corner of his mouth barked at Donelli. What is this guy? Nuts? The professor was quick to give assurance. Oh, oh, oh no, gentlemen. I, I can set your minds at ease by saying that I'm not the victim of dementia praecox. Definitely not. Scarface barked again. Hey, listen to the guy. He's swearing at us. Donelli spat out a command. Shut up, Augie. Then he waved a gun at the professor. What are you? A copper? Oh, no, heavens no. I'm not a minion of the law. I'm a doctor of science. The leader bobbed his head at the gang. Meet the doc, you monkeys. A guy who don't know when he's well off by keeping his bugle out of the guy's business. Well, now, you get this, flappy ears. We don't go for your ideas. Because I ain't got no time to waste, I'm gonna polish you off. I... Uh, uh, you mean you're going to shoot me? Yeah, that's the general idea. The professor answered without a tremor in his voice. Oh, but uh, I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Hey, <laughs> this guy's really screwy. I, I, I resent that statement intensely. I gave you my assurance once before that I'm not mentally maladjusted. As a matter of fact, I might venture to say that it is you gentlemen who are displaying symptoms of mental derangement if you abolish me homicidally. Donnelly became impatient. Cut out the fancy talk. Speak English. Well, you see, gentlemen, between the thumb and index finger of my right hand, I hold a small capsule. You remember I told you I was a doctor of science? Well, in this capsule, I have a highly concentrative and potent formula that when subjected to a slight concussion, 
will explode. There's no noise at all, just a heavy film of gas that pervades the room. And when the victim, or I might say, uh, victims, breathe this gas, it desensitizes them for a period of several hours. The who's a, is a, what is he saying? Cosmo quietly explained in detail what he'd just said. Danelli put his hand to his belt line. How long does it take for a guy to croak? Oh, he doesn't die for a good many days. Sometimes it takes several weeks. A victim experiences electrostatic pains for a long period of time. Danelli took a step forward. Let me say this thing. Stand back. Stay where you are or I might drop it. The gangster stopped in his tracks as the little man continued. Uh, and now, gentlemen, perhaps you'll listen to me reasonably. Hmm? As I was coming upstairs, I took the precaution to take an antidote. You understand? Another capsule to offset personal harm to myself in the event that it is necessary for me to drop the little article that I hold in my hand. So, now that everything has been explained and it is obvious that I'm the master of the situation, I want you to follow my suggestion. Wave a flag of truce out of the window to testify that you are going to surrender peacefully. Then toss all this uh, artillery that you've gathered around the room into the street below. Walk downstairs and submit to the police officers quietly. The professor waited for a moment and received no answer. Come, 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 gentlemen. Uh, there's no time to lose. After all, what would you be gaining by holding out? Hmm? Sooner or later, the police will storm your not invulnerable fort. Blood will shed your blood and all for nothing. There was a long pause and nothing was said. Gentlemen, I shall now drop the little pellet I hold in my hand. It was Scarface who revealed his thoughts. Wait a minute. Listen, Donnelly. I ain't gonna take a rap for no little monkey like that. I'm waving my nosegay out of the window right now. He took his handkerchief and started for the window. The other two men followed. Donnelly looked disgustedly at the professor. All right, all right, we're stuck. But if you didn't have that little pill in your mitts, I'd blast you. It was an amazed Captain Murphy who watched while the white ribbon of surrender flooded about at the second-story window. And then a rain of pistols, revolvers, ammunition, rifles, and sawed-off shotguns descended to the sidewalk. Police officers, with their mouths open, saw the unbelievable sight of a gang of the worst cutthroats in the city meekly step out on the sidewalk with their hands high above their heads. Murphy barked orders to his fellow officers and then spoke briefly with Donnelly. An instant later, the hoodlums were packed into police squad cars and driven away. The captain waited until Professor Jones reached the pavement and then hailed him. Hey, you little worm. Come here. What's the meaning of this? You practically commit suicide and then a stunt like this comes off. What's the angle? The little fellow smiled modestly and started off on his favorite subject. You see, Captain... My theory that there is no need for violence in apprehending criminals was upheld again by the practical application of pretense and events of misleading character. I might say that if you ever have need for my services in the future, you can reach me by dropping a card to Professor Cosmo Jones in care of general delivery. Now, don't give me any more of your blarney. Donnelly told me you had a bomb in your hands up there. The professor looked puzzled. Uh, a, a, a bomb? Yes, yes, now, you, you little worm, where, where, where is it? Come out with it now. Cosmo thought a moment, 
and then a dawning light spread over its face. Oh, oh yes, yes. You mean this? The captain looked down at the pellet in the little fellow's hand. Yes, I, I guess so. What is it? Why, it's merely a capsule of concentrated cod liver oil containing vitamins A, B, and D, to say nothing of that modern vitamin B12. Have one, Captain. And so ends another story from Studio X, starring your one-man theater, Paul Fries, who portrays all of the parts. Mr. Fries will return in just a moment after a few words from your announcer. Professor Goes for a Walk was written by Walter Gehring, produced by Sam Kerner with music composed and played by Rami Idris, special effects by Fred Cole. Your announcer was Shepard Mencken. Won't you join us again at Studio X when we present another thrilling story for your entertainment? This is Paul Fries saying goodbye. Until next, we meet. Welcome back. Well, a slightly different characterization, but still well-played and an amusing story that shows Cosmo's strength as a crime fighter. Now, I should mention that there are other Cosmo Jones stories out there that Paul Freeze did, but taking a listen to them, they diverge from having anything to do with crime and become more comedy than anything else. And I'm wondering whether those were new stories, or if that's the course that Cosmo Jones took over the radio in the early 40s. Strangely enough, the uh, 
police captain still appears in those stories, even though there's doesn't appear to be a whole lot to do with crime. Well, that will do it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, 200th episode. If you are listening on the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, would like to hear more of these presentations, even though I don't think any of them will be mysteries at all. You can subscribe to The Amazing World of Radio at amazing.greatdetectives.net. We have seven previous episodes in the series, and we will be playing a new episode every week, August 3rd, 10th, 17th, and 24th. In the meantime, though, if you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. But from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.